Welcome to the season two finale of Your Calling, Our Podcast, the podcast for Evangel University. Evangel actually means good news, and we want to share good news with you about the incredible ways our alumni, students, and friends are changing the world. And in this special episode, you'll hear from one of our alumni who was at the very center of a world-changing event 20 years ago. Hi, I'm your host, Hector Cruz, and I work in the University Advancement Office at Evangel University in Springfield, Missouri. This week, we reflect on the events of 9-11, that tragic day two decades ago on September 11, 2001. May we never forget the heroes who saved so many lives on that day and the days and weeks that followed. The heart of everything we do at Evangel is equipping our students to transform the world. The specifics of how that happens, however, depend on how and where the Spirit has called each individual to serve. In a few moments, you'll hear from Admiral Vern Clark, whose calling included leading a $120 billion, with a B, organization with approximately 900,000 employees and contractors in his role as Chief of Naval Operations for the United States Navy. At the time, he was the only person to fill that role who was not a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. Admiral Clark is an alum of Evangel, and he frequently tells people how he met his wife, Connie, also an Evangel graduate, on a speed bump in front of the library on campus. Admiral Clark went on from Evangel to earn an MBA before embarking on a distinguished career in the Navy. His number one priority as Chief of Naval Operations was to, quote, win the battle for people, which led to the best recruiting and retention results in Naval history. Admiral Clark is a passionate servant of Jesus Christ, whose light has shown in the highest reaches of power in Washington, D.C. and around the globe. This story was shared at a special event led by retired President Dr. Carol Taylor a couple of years ago, and we can't think of a better way to commemorate this 20-year anniversary of 9-11 than sharing it with you now. I pray you are inspired hearing his story of faith and leadership through one of the darkest days in American history. Thank you, Dr. Taylor. I would love to just spend five minutes uh, following the lead of others who have spoken so eloquently about how much we appreciate Carol Taylor. I got to work with her at Vanguard, and so I've, I really didn't know her before that. Evangel, so fortunate to have you here, Dr. Taylor. We appreciate you. On Monday, September 10th, 2001, I was in a ceremonial event with President George W. Bush and the Prime Minister from Australia in Washington, D.C. Along with that group of those two and myself was my counterpart from Australia, the commander of the Australian Navy. On Wednesday of the same week, I was once again in a meeting with the President. But in the 36 hours that had transpired from my previous encounter with him, one of the worst non-wartime attacks on American soil had completely changed the scope of my work. As the Chief of Naval Operations, the CNO they called, called me, and others who had that assignment, I served with a team of 2,500 military and civilian members in our headquarters in the Pentagon. On Tuesday, September 11th, 2001, 85% of my offices 
were destroyed or damaged when American Airlines Flight 77, piloted by terrorists, crashed into the first floor level of the Pentagon. Flight 77 came into and went through my command center, and 42 of my sailors were killed. Amazingly, 10 more members of the Navy family, family members, retired Navy people, active duty families, and so forth, lost their lives in the other aircraft that were driven by terrorists that day, piloted by terrorists. I was in my office some distance away, but within 10 seconds of the attack, and I'll never forget the explosion. I've been around a few of those, you can imagine. First the expansion of air and then the contraction of air, the windows heaving. And a member of my team came in and said, Admiral, you've got to get out of here. And the smoke was pouring into the office and his recommendation made a lot of sense. We started to leave, but I wanted to depart via the National Military Command Center located almost directly under Secretary of Defense Don Rumsfeld's office on the opposite side of the Pentagon complex. I knew that area well months before I had been the Director of Operations responsible to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and monitoring all the military operations of the United States and the world. When I went in there, the officer who had relieved me some months before was sitting in the midst of this, you can imagine what it was like in there, a little more chaotic than I even expected. I reported to him that I had lost all communications with my command center, that I was relocating, and I told him exactly where, and that I would reconnect soonest. I then connected on the way out the director of the Naval Staff a Navy three-star female who was the most senior woman in the United States Navy, and I had placed in this position as the director of the Naval Staff. I gave her this direction as I was jumping into the car. Pat, put together a team and find our people. On September the 12th, at 6 p.m., the President came to the Pentagon to meet with the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Secretary of Defense, and several others. It was not a big meeting. It was not a ceremonial meeting, although there, it is true that part of the uh, issue was to prove that the Pentagon was not closed. When the president sat down, he said simply to the Secretary of Defense, Don, do you have an update? He did, and it was brief. I've sat through or given hundreds of those, and I knew that meant that they had been speaking frequently. It was short, to the point. When the Rumsfeld was done, the president turned to him, and he was sitting to his immediate right, and his finger was direct, and he said, Don, don't ever forget what happened yesterday. And then, and there were 10 of us sitting at the table, it was a small meeting, one person at a time, in turn, he went around and he said, don't forget, don't ever forget, don't ever forget. And when he had reached the last one of us, he said, I promise you, I will never forget. And on his way out of the room, the president, when he reached the door, I was close to the door on that side of the table. He turned to me, referring to the ceremony we both attended on Monday. He said, Vern, 
What a difference 36 hours makes. Indeed, what a difference 36 hours can make. But, and I say this with all the humility that I know how to muster, God had equipped me to handle the challenges those 36 hours brought. In large degree to what had started so many years earlier at Evangel. The development and expanded understanding of my calling, the call to serve. That meeting was in the afternoon of the 12th. Earlier that morning on the 12th, I remember my first meeting with my direct reports, and some of them were really shaken, and you can imagine why. I went around the room, and I started the meeting by saying, okay, give me an update on what you had, just like you had seen uh, later in the day with the president. That's the way we do things in the military. Tell me what you got. I listened for 20 minutes, and then I said, and by then, one of the reports was at 1 o'clock in the morning, we found all our people, and we knew that we had lost 42. So here's our calling. First, the United States Navy is going to wrap their arms around every one of those families, 42 families. And it is your responsibility to see to it that that happens. We will spare nothing but to love on them and let them know that we and the nation appreciates their sacrifice. But that is not your calling and it's not my calling today. It's your calling to see to it that that happens. Our calling is this. We have to reestablish a headquarters because ours is gone. There are 400 sailors out there counting on us and our job today is to reestablish that headquarters. Each of you assume full responsibility and authority don't wait for permission, for goodness sakes. Just do what needs to be done. And, of course, the Marine Corps had given us space to set up a temporary headquarters. And before the day is over, we need to make sure this headquarters is reestablished. And the meeting ended quickly. There wasn't anything else to say that day. And I just said simply, let's get to work. In moments like these, ladies and gentlemen, you cannot function or lead by example unless you understand the challenge and you know exactly what is required, including how to effectively move the group forward. To consider all of this in a broader perspective, you can't transform the world. The focus of the pillar that we're looking at today, as Dr. Taylor has told us, without knowing your stuff, to include where you need to go, but not only do the people around you need to trust your competence, but they must also know and trust your heart? Because if they don't, they won't view you as a credible source, and they won't believe you. Knowing, them knowing our hearts is made so much more possible by the presence of Christ's love in our hearts. And that's what makes us different and differentiates us in the marketplace. Evangel lives out this, these values. Carol, I loved it when you said you do it intentionally. I added intentionality to my notes last night. 
<laughs> because evangel with intentionality starts students on the journey of growth and development, including understanding the requirement for lifelong learning and instills in them the values and importance of love in their hearts. And only then can these young people become adults and have a true transformation, transformative impact. Now, yesterday, already Phil said, Christy said she knew she was coming to Evangel when she was 13. Sounds like he did too. Goodness, I'm amazed. I'm impressed. I wasn't quite there at 13. I, we lived in Springfield. My sister was in, started school there in 1957. Um, so... Like some others, I wasn't sure about that. But on a Sunday night, I was on my knees at an Assembly of God church on the front row pew, kneeling and asking the Lord to show me what to do. And like so many other people, I just had a clear sense from the Holy Spirit that that was where I was supposed to go. Now, yesterday, you heard Dr. Taylor talk about the campus, though it's mostly just barracks. And I want to tell you, I knew immediately, I got there before her, and I was older than her. That's why I got there before her, because when I got there, it was, uh, was just barracks, not mostly. <laughs> I never spent time thinking about whether it was a really cool place or a really ugly place. Never did. Never entered my head, really. Must have been something wrong. It just was what it was, and I had grown up in a fairly modest uh, upbringing, and so my expectations weren't through the roof. I knew I had to make something out of the opportunity that was being given to me, and that's what I was focused on. I had some incredible professors at Evangel, Dr. Louise Reddick, the head of my department, and there, then, then, Dr. Joel Cheney, goodness, Joel Cheney. This guy was tough. I had a course from him. Imagine this, where I ended up. The course was public policy. It was a course with eight seniors in it. He gave six C's, one B, one A. Um, some of those students didn't care for him much. <laughs> we didn't write a term paper for him. He made us write a paper for him every week on a topic that he chose. In the course of that semester, I learned for the first time in my life how to really do research on a topic and attack it until I could speak with confidence about it. The product that was produced over the course of that semester was a young na man named Vern, that would be me, who had learned how to pay the price to develop competency and was not afraid to tackle any subject if we were willing to pay the price to learn. I want to tell you, in all the years that I was in the Navy, so often I thought at the highest levels of government where I was working, I thought back to Joel Cheney and how he had invested in my life and changed my ability in a significant way. Well, I thought he was great. John's father, President J. Robert Ashcroft, was another one who made such a big difference. He strongly believed that Christians could and should, I love that, could and should succeed in the secular world and be an influence for Christ. I, it really helped me affirm the sense of calling that I felt about doing that. Every month or so, President Ashcroft would come into the chapel. He was so great with the students. 
would walk into chapel with a letter in his hand from a student or the boss of the student or somehow associated with the student, and he would start telling us about this person and what they were doing. It was exhilarating. And remember, we weren't accredited at that time. I want to tell you, hearing about evangel graduates who were out on point making a difference had a huge impact on me. These men and women at Evangel played such a tremendous role in equipping me for a lifetime of service to my country. But that's really not why I'm here today. I'm here to talk about not the past, but the future. I'm passionate, and Connie joins me in that. We're passionate about Evangel because this university is still preparing young people to transform the world. The mission hasn't changed at one bit in 64 years, and I believed, I really believe it is more important today than it has ever been in the history of man. And that's why I believe in Christian education and that the young people of Evangel are worth the interest, our interest. They're worth our prayers. They're worth our investment. They'll form the families and fill the churches in the future. They'll lead the churches and our parachurch ministries. They'll be leaders in business, in education, in health care, and even sometimes in the military. They are our future. So President John Kennedy once said that a great career is to be a captain in the United States Navy. Now, President Kennedy said that because he was the captain of PT-109, but he was only a lieutenant. And it takes 20 years to make, create a captain. It takes four years, usually, to make a lieutenant. Well, I was given that same honor, one that got to command as a lieutenant, and I remember the sense of tremendous honor I felt the first time I backed a ship under my command away from the pier in Naples, Italy. It was the United States ship Grand Rapids. Now you look at that thing there. Uh, in the Navy we call them uh, men of war. But a little ship like that, 165 feet long and 24 foot beam, you couldn't call that a man of war. You could call that a boy of war, but uh, <laughs> with a lieutenant in command. Barely six years, not six years yet in the Navy. Our first mission assignment was given. And we're to go detect Soviet diesel submarines coming through the Straits of Gibraltar on the surface at night. We need to know they're in there. We can't track them if we don't even know they arrived. We were watching for them right in the middle of the transit lanes of the Straits of Gibraltar, a pretty busy body of water. I remember the first night on station, we were parked right between where we could really see both channels coming and going. I had just gone down to eat dinner after a long afternoon. We got on station getting all set up and the sun was going down. I ran down in the wardroom to get dinner and I was down there a few minutes and the phone rang and it was the officer of the deck. And that's the person on the bridge who has full authority to act for me, the captain, while I'm not on the bridge. And he said, Captain, you better get up here to the bridge. And you know, I sort of recognized the sense of that of that phone call. I bounded up to the bridge. My officer of the deck said, Captain, if we keep going this way, that 
that ship, we're going to hit that ship right there. The international rules of the road require us to maneuver to starboard. If I maneuver to starboard, I'm going to hit that ship right there. <clears throat> I understood these kind of situations. I'd done them before. I walked over to the center line compass. In my previous life, I'd been a department head on a much larger ship, a destroyer. I was an officer of the deck many times. I wouldn't have been the captain of this ship if I didn't do this well. I started shooting angles of these ships from uh, here to here. And I, you know, it became clear. I went through all the calculations, the bearing rates, and so forth. And said, "Here's what we need to do. It's my job to make a report and a recommendation to the commanding officer. The commanding officer sits always in the chair that's reserved for him or her on the starboard side of the bridge. I literally turned to the starboard side of the bridge to make my recommendation to the commanding officer, and that chair was empty because I wasn't sitting in it." I turned to the officer of the deck and said, okay, here's what we need to do. He started the maneuvers. I went and sat down in my chair. And I had a real camp meeting, prayer meeting. Just me and my God. I said, Lord, it's really clear. I just really believe he allowed that to happen. Like the first night of the first operation I was on. I need you, Lord. I can't do this by myself. You're the officer of every good and perfect gift. You're my living savior, my healer, my deliverer. Lord, I ask you to be with me. Well, it was a tight fit, but we made it. I'm still here. A lot of good things happened after that. The lessons, though, I learned that night stayed with me for a lifetime. And I lived a life of short prayers. And I made it a point who never faced one of those moments without saying, Lord, be with me, I need your wisdom right now. I realized the importance of bringing my faith to the marketplace, to the workplace, and I needed sometimes divine strength and help and sometimes even divine intervention. I also learned that I needed my crew and I would only be successful if they were successful. I felt the important sense of the calling to serve my crew as I served my nation. And evangel gave me the theological understanding to know what it meant to be a servant leader, that I needed to love my crew with a Christ-like love. Growing up, I never thought a boy like me from born in Sioux City, Iowa, would someday be commanding a ship in the United States Navy or end up walking the halls of power in the Pentagon. Today, when people and it happens often, you can imagine, talk to me, young people especially, about what it takes to succeed. I say things like, you really have to know what you believe. You really need to become a great leader, an effective leader. You really have to realize the importance of investing in people. And then, one of the last and important things that I say, and always to people of faith, live grace. Live grace and love. Why? Because I've witnessed, as you have, hundreds and thousands of people where their actions were screaming so loud that the people that needed to hear their message didn't hear a thing they said. We won't win others just with our speech. 
but we can with our kindness and our consideration and our attitude. We are called to let Jesus shine out in our lives, to let the be- his beauty be seen in us, and that's our calling. And you know what? That's exactly what Evangel College then and Evangel University is doing today. Today, you and I have such an opportunity to come alongside and even walk with this amazing institution and help them raise up more spirit-led Christian people who will transform the world through their love. It is our privilege, our responsibility, it is our calling to play a key role in this mission that faces our world today. Thank you very much. Wow. Admiral Clark's story is so inspiring every time I hear it. We are all called, and I hope you're encouraged to pursue the calling God has for you too. And I hope we can all agree to do our best to live grace just as he implored us to do. I'm so grateful that you joined us as we shared the remarkable stories of our alumni in this season. If you missed any episodes, I encourage you to go back and check them out. I'm completely biased, but our alumni are absolutely incredible. We share their stories because collectively, they're the story of Evangel. If you have any questions, comments, or want to learn more about what's happening at Evangel, send us an email at alumni at evangel.edu. I would love to hear from you and learn more about your story. Also, a very special thanks to our season sponsor, AGCU, the Assemblies of God Credit Union. They've been so supportive of the mission of Evangel in so many ways. We could not have shared these stories without them. Learn more about how they're helping people bank with a purpose at agcu.org. Lastly, as we close out this season, I want to thank you for listening to Your Calling, our podcast. Until next time, I'm Hector Cruz, and don't forget to share the good news and be the good news. God bless.